Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth, reminding you to please rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash Pop Pantheon and shop our merch. Get our niche legend dad hat at poppantheonpod.com. I just want to quickly say up top, obviously, we had our two pride gorgeous gorgeouses over the last couple weekends on June 9th in LA and then our debut party in Brooklyn on June 16th. And they were so amazing. And I got to meet so many incredible listeners of the show. And I just wanted to say thank you so, so, so much to everybody that came out to those parties. They were some of the best nights of my life. And I was just absolutely amazed at just like, not just that the parties were sold out and amazing and so much fun and whatever, but also just the fact that the energy was so good and everybody in the crowd was so amazing and everybody had like such positive, open, incredible energy that like made the party really fun for me and also just speaks to, I think, like how incredible this community is. And I was so glad to get to meet everybody that came up to me, especially at the New York party where I got to meet a whole bunch of you. And I'm just incredibly touched by everybody's love of the show that they expressed to me. It was really deeply meaningful. And the feeling is mutual. None of this would be happening or possible without you guys. And thank you. Thank you. And I'm so excited for more. We have the next LA party happening on July 14th at Resident in downtown Los Angeles. And I will include the ticket link for that in the show notes of this episode. And more New York dates are forthcoming. So, so excited about that. Thank you guys so, so much for coming out to that. This episode of the show is the final installment of our Pride series we've been unfurling over the last month. This episode was deeply personal for me. So I invited Craig Genex, who is an assistant professor in the English department at Toronto Metropolitan University, who also wrote an incredible journal article called Diva Worship and the Sonic Search for Queer Utopia, which is exploring the relationship between queer men in particular and pop divas. Why do queer men, why do we worship pop divas? What is the connection here? What is the give and take here? What do we see in them? What are they expressing for us? What do they in turn, I guess, call from us? Like, how does this holy, as the title says, relationship between queer men and pop divas function on a deeper level? What are the sociological implications of that relationship? And I really wanted to explore that. I've been wanting to for a long time. And after reading Craig's paper, I was like, yes, this is the person to talk to about this. And we both share a lot of personal anecdotes about this relationship for us personally. Plus, we get to get into what exactly has forged this bond in pop culture over the last 50, 100 further years. I mean, it's incredible what his paper covers. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. It was really, really fun for me to make fun, funny, touching, revealing maybe a little bit. I don't know. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Craig Jennix. Okay, so I am here with Dr. Craig Genex, who is an assistant professor in the Department of English at Toronto Metropolitan University. Dr. Craig Genex, welcome to the show. What should I call you? Should I call you Craig? Should I call you doctor? What do you, what do you like to be referred oh to? Oh my as? God, no. Call me Craig. That'd be great. Okay. Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you. I am too. You know, when Russ and I were conceiving of our Pride content, this topic was one of the first things that I really wanted to address. So just to situate us here, Craig wrote an incredible journal article called Diva Worship and the Sonic Search for Queer Utopia, 
we're here today to talk about the relationship, I think specifically between gay men in particular and pop divas. Obviously, the show touches on this topic a lot in our episodes. I am a gay man, a queer man. This is like something that's incredibly personal and like part of my own story. And we talk a lot on the show about how big of a role queer people play in the careers of pop stars as inspirations for pop stars and sort of vice versa, the role that pop divas can sort of play in the imagination and lives of gay men. And I wanted to take this opportunity here during Pride Month to actually like dig into why this is, how this has happened, some of the history here. And, you know, your piece really gets into a lot of that. It's so fascinating. I mean, there were things I learned in there about how far back this actually might go that I think might blow people's minds. But that's essentially what we're here to do today. My first question for you is, how did you become interested in this topic? Like, what led you to write this paper, this article? And, like, what made you intrigued by this relationship? Great question. So I have long been, like, teased for my love of female pop stars right mostly mm. by like i don't know straight people who felt like it was like <laughs> incorrect in some way mm. or like odd but the thing that really sparked that research paper was that i found this article from i think the year 2000 i think it was published in the atlantic but it was written by a dude a gay dude who was arguing mm. that gay men no longer adore divas or no longer care about camp because now we fetishize normativity and he was saying this mm -hmm. as like, as though it was a good thing. He was saying like, gay men are basically just the same as straight men, except for that one tiny difference that relates to <laughs> sexual attraction. Okay, so you're with me, clearly. Like, I read this and I just, I fucking hated this idea so mm -hmm. much, right? Because it seems mm -hmm. to erase so much of the beauty and uniqueness and like wonderful weirdness of what it means to be a gay man, right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't know, I wouldn't have articulated this way at the time, but I'm not just like, a normal guy who enjoys having sex with men. I'm sure. like, I am faggy. I am a homo. Like, I want to be queer <laughs> in the sense that, like, I am not normal, right? Not conventional, yes. not constrained yes. by, like, prevailing logic of how men mm -hmm. should be, right? Like, that's not mm -hmm. the type of life I want to live. And so I think that's what really sparked this for me, where I was like, no, I think this is actually important. And I think it's worth thinking about and holding on to and celebrating because, I don't know, obviously I'm biased, but I think masculine identities built on femininity can be like beautiful and can be actually like really important and maybe a good way to fight back against certain forms of toxic masculinities that we're seeing right now. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more with you on that. And I could like literally do an entire separate episode on a separate podcast about like the agony and ecstasy of the normalization of queer people and gay men in particular and like how I look at younger generations and like see their relative lack of struggle and their relative acceptance and feel both like obviously immense envy, a lot of happiness for them, like whatever. But also I was literally talking about this with a friend the other day, like how much amazing shit has come out of like the trauma and the struggle artistically, yeah. just what it brings out in people, culturally like creating spaces in my career, nightlife, you know, yeah. it's just, it's a really complex sort of situation, the sort of mainstreaming of queerness, of gayness, you know, it's obviously on the whole a good thing to not be like marginalized or yeah. be less marginalized, whatever, but at the same time, it does create some like interesting and kind of like strange, like dissonance I think in the minds of like older generations of queer and gay people and the 
this way. I'm wondering, yeah. like, did pop divas play a like specific role for you growing up? Like, was there something in particular, or were there specific divas or types of female entertainers that were you were drawn to and that had like an impact on you and your experience as a queer person? Yeah, yeah, and in sort of like an oblique or like roundabout way, like it was through the types of artists that my mom would listen to, mm. and so it wasn't. I don't know. I maybe she'll listen to this podcast and be like, oh, that's what turned him gay. Maybe I shouldn't have listened to <laughs> Gloria Stefan in the car so much. But but like for me, it was my mom was always listening to Gloria Stefan and Whitney Houston and even like Diana Ross sometimes and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it's these artists who I just grew up listening to, singing along with. And then in my head where no one could see what was going on, I was also like exploring other sorts of identities and feelings and communities and that might be possible through this music. And it was just kind of their voices, their image and presentation, what they were singing about. Like, are there specific things you can locate in your interest in them, even just hearing them through your mom's car speakers or whatever that yeah. was speaking to you? Like when you look back on that, what was it about them just in your personal experience that you think kind of touched you in a specific way? Yeah. And so now I'm thinking another big one would have been Celine Dion when I was a kid. Yeah. And so now mm -hmm. I'm realizing like, oh, there's something about this like extraordinary emotionality. Like mm -hmm. I was such a hopeless romantic from the age of like six on. Like I was just like yeah. so faggy and trying so hard <laughs> to hide it. And so in this music, I feel like I was experiencing these incredible highs and lows of love that of course made no sense to me at the time and still don't really make sense to me. But at the time they were like, offering me so much and so many experiences that I was like craving and longing for. You also mentioned like the voice, which I think is such an interesting thing to think about. Like when you were a kid, were you ever teased for your voice or were you ever like- Oh, of course, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's like a rite of passage, at least in our generation <laughs> yeah. of queer men. Like, I mean, that was just like something that I was so self-conscious of, something that I worked to change, something that I worked to hide. It was definitely yeah. like the thing I felt was like the giveaway. I remember being yes, horrified yes. hearing recordings of my voice. Like if I ever heard yeah. tape of my voice or heard my voice back in an answering machine or something like that yeah, I'd be like, yeah, yeah. oh my god that's what i sound like ah like yeah. everybody knows you know that kind of yeah. thing but it's like we should take comfort in the fact that it's shared like i feel the same way i was like repulsed whenever i heard a recording of my <laughs> voice i was like oh yeah. fuck like that's how i come off in the world but yeah. and i think this is because like for any of us who like i don't know transgress gender and sexual norms or expectations like the voice is such a site of anxiety mm -hmm. right like you said like you were worried it would give you away and i feel that yeah. fully right i remember when i was 12 or something i was like a closeted 12 year old and i asked <laughs> a friend you know why is everybody like whispering behind my back about the fact that they think I'm gay. And I remember she said like, oh, it's your voice. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it was my voice. Like, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was, but I think I was also just like in love with the boys I was friends with. And I probably was not very good at hiding that. But sure. like from that moment, the voice was like a real intense site of anxiety for me. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think for most gay men, and this is nothing compared to what like trans and gender nonconforming people sure. go through trying to like sure. present or like be heard vocally in the way that they want mm -hmm. people to perceive 
achieve them, right? So, mm-hmm. so then I think if we think about like pop divas for whom the voice is like their greatest weapon, their like greatest mm. strength, their greatest shield, like all these things, I think it's like a confusing mix of maybe jealousy, but like loving jealousy and also just like adoration because mm-hmm. like look at what they're doing with their voice, this thing that I feel is such like a detriment or a threat to me. That's so interesting. Yeah. And like, you know, you think about someone like even the divas that you're mentioning, I'm thinking about Celine Dion where it's just like unleashed voice, like the absolute like zenith of like not hiding voice, like literally. So that's a really interesting thing. I mean, the thing that I would maybe add is the cuntiness factor. I mean, the thing for me in the divas that I grew up being obsessed with, which were like Janet, Britney, Beyonce, Madonna, you know, that could be kind of like maybe like the, the four that I can really think of that were like the ones for me. It was like, here I was hiding those hyper feminized aspects of myself and hiding most aspects of myself to be honest with you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then I would sort of look at Britney in these videos just like being so fierce and like being so comfortable in the body being so comfortable moving the body in that way being so comfortable putting their sexuality out there because I mean look that the trauma of hiding that part of myself is something that lingers with me to this day I mean like yeah. my fear of putting that out there so it's something I can only imagine as I came into the understanding of my sexuality being something that I needed to obscure, something that was dangerous or something that I feared, looking at the way that these women just served, you know, looking at the way that they were able to just like get up in front of people and let that part of themselves be like front and center and it be so powerful. I have a feeling that, you know, subconsciously I was looking at that and going like, man, I I wish that could be me. Like I wish I could be the person that like allowed my sexuality to lead in this way and to be so comfortable with that and be so powerful as a result of allowing that to fully live. I think that that, at least in the divas that I felt like I gravitated towards, that felt like a huge element of like why I like venerated them or like just was completely like in awe of them or like wished I had what they had, I guess. Oh, shit, yeah. I had a similar moment of realization where it's like, oh, this sort of like feminized sexuality doesn't have to be something shameful, right? It can right. actually be this like source of power, like you say, mm-hmm. right? It's this powerful embrace that mm-hmm. is just so, I don't know, inspiring, but also mm-hmm. enlivening. And like, I don't know, it's a model, right? For how we should all live, I think, of just like yeah. embracing this like feminine sexuality, this eroticism, this like, I don't know, over the top emotional theatricality of like desire like all these things are just so fucking good and they model for us all of those they do and then there's also just like the tinge of sadness that I think about how even more powerful it might have been to have seen another queer man occupying Mm. that space but like we just did not have that I mean of course you know there's George Michael there there have been queer male pop stars but of course they've largely been closeted at the peaks of their success and you know there's lots of complications I mean I you 
know, one thing thinking about in sort of like the envy I sometimes feel towards younger generations of queer men is like, I honestly think that like Little Nas X is like the first out queer male pop star that sort of like really occupies that similar sort of space that some of these divas do. Like where he gets up there, he's super cunty. The gay sex is right there in the lyrics. It's super explicit. He's not afraid to fully embody that character. And I think that there's both like the glory of sort of finding your identity in straight women or, you know, Mm -hmm. or straight presenting women. And then there's also kind of like the inherent sort of like sadness that that was kind of like the best that you could do in this particular way because there was so little actual representation of like what it would be like for a queer male to be in one of these spaces or to serve as inspiration in this way like that was another thing that I think I think we're still really lacking honestly especially in a space that again feels like it's so much the providence of queer men and queer people in, in general but definitely gay men pop music you know this is like one of the holy like couples of pop culture and yet we still feel really underrepresented especially in sort of the main top tier echelon of pop stardom like still in 2023 yeah and i mean so now i'm just wondering like imagine if lil nas x was around when you were a kid when you were just like a little queer kid trying to figure shit out if this was like a model you could have used i I mean i hope it's incredible it's incredible for me at 36 honestly it's been powerful for me i can only imagine what it would have felt like or what it does feel like to a 12 year old i mean it's yeah. It's still so rare, right? That like I'm still shocked and have to like adjust when I see it because I'm still like, oh, you're allowed to be this. You're allowed to be a male presenting or identifying person and act in this way in front of other people in this big of a scale. I feel fear for him. You know, I have all yeah. of these things oh, yeah. that come up around him that like, you know, it's still shocking in 2023 and at 36, given all yeah. my life experience. <laughs> and I've been out of the closet for 20 years and, you know, it's yeah. like it never stops being shocking and it needs to, you know, like it needs yeah. to stop being so surprising. All right. So what I want to ask you about first is your paper does an incredible job of tracing this back beyond kind of like the modern pop industrial complex as we think about it today. How yeah. do you see the origins of this or like how can we trace this back? Like where does this special relationship between queer men and divas begin in your mind? Yeah, this is such a good question. There's a long history here, right? I think- yes a long and interesting history. I think some of the earliest examples that we have in like written archival evidence has to do with somebody like Judy Garland, right? Or opera divas that gay men just like fell in love with, right? Like, so Mm -hmm. the type of fandom we're talking about here is like this obsessed kind of like over the top fandom in which the music and the artist becomes more than that, right? It's not just Mm. the music. It's like a way to understand life. It's like a metaphor for how we want to live our lives. Like we've been getting at Mm. that so far in this conversation conversation just like the power that we can get that we can glean from these artists if we take them on as like almost a religious figure maybe that's the best way to like translate yeah. this for any straight listeners out there <laughs> it's like religious devotion in a sense right it's it's about dedication mm-hmm. it's about love it's about surrendering to the idea of a higher power but in this case mm-hmm. the higher power is like Whitney Houston instead of some sort of religious text or whatever I accept her as a higher power I think yeah. that's a fully oh like acceptable POV on Whitney Without Houston right 
I think it makes a lot more sense than a lot of higher powers that people tend Agreed. to think of, but whatever. I think the primary example, like the primary historical example is Judy Garland. And there's right. there's a bit of like context here that I think is important. Like pre-1950, Judy Garland was presented as like the pinnacle of ordinariness in the best way, mm. right? Because like mm. post-Second World War, there was just this desire, especially in the States, for everyone to just be like fucking normal and ordinary and not stand out. It was like a time when the government was punishing people who were not ordinary, right? Or who seemed different or foreign or weird. And so mm. everybody just wanted to like pass as normal, mm. right? White picket fence, two kids driving to the city for work, yada, yada, yada. So Judy Garland was presented in this way, in such a beautiful way. Like she was the ultimate symbol of like girl next door, ordinary white Americanness. sing let the sound of your voice turn with the spring but then in 1950 she gets fired from her studio she attempts suicide she just has this very public downfall or like very public meltdown and so mm. in this moment in the year 1950 it becomes clear that like judy garland was pushed to be ordinary and normal but wasn't and so i think there's like something there that connected with gay men of the moment where it's like oh she just came out as not normal in the same mm. way that, you know, I was raised to be normal and ordinary, but mm. I'm not, right? So there was this like mm. sort of moment in which this connection happens. And then for the next two decades, so she died in 1969, the same month and year as the Stonewall riots. And so sometimes right. people are like, were gay people so angry about her death that they rioted in the streets? And it's like, there's not a ton of evidence of that, but it's, it's believable. Think about. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I, I get it. In the 50s and 60s, this becomes like part of Garland's public persona. So there's also sorts of written stuff by like straight music critics who are trying to understand this obsession gay men have with Judy Garland. There's this one from, I think it's from six, 1967 from an LA paper about a concert there. The journalist was like, why are there so many homosexuals just like sobbing at this concert? Like what is, what is going on here? And so straight people were writing about this like connection with this like kind of voyeuristic fascination and derision, right? Being like, what mm. the fuck is going on here? But then a bunch of gay men were writing about it being like, holy shit, I went to a Judy Garland concert and learned that there are other people just like mm. me out there. So that's pretty cool, right? Where it's like, okay, this guy's going to a Judy Garland concert and all of a sudden realizes like, yeah, he's part of a broader fan community, but he's also part of something else, like a broader network of people who like him are like not the way they're supposed to be according to the society. Right. And right. so that's such an interesting moment. I think that's a useful sort of starting point for thinking about diva worship. You know, you're making me think about two kind of important elements that feel present here that feel even more fleshed out as this relationship evolves over the next let's say 80 years or 75 years is one the underdog yeah. narrative and the way that gay men you know obviously yes we're here to worship Beyonce and all of the A-list divas but there's also a kind of special element of this transaction that occurs between the gay man and the sort of underdog pop diva or yes. the oh idea God, yeah. that their fave is misunderstood or not appreciated enough and that like your identity becomes wrapped around the idea that like no like society does not understand for some reason like how great this person is and like yeah. it is my crusade to like make them understand that crusade is the best way to frame like yes yeah. brilliant that's the perfect term and even to frame highly successful divas 
yeah. like as underdogs, you know, like or to sort of see somehow like any slight against them as like a, a step too far. That feels like a very important element of the relationship. And, you know, I do again, like not to state the obvious, but I think that there is the feeling of underdogness or misunderstoodness oh, yeah. that obviously isn't part of the queer identity and creates that relationship of like, no, like you're not getting me. You're not seeing the totality of me for some reason. You're unable to like see my full self here. And like, it's very frustrating. And I think there's a way that we can channel that into like sales figures and chart positions and et cetera, et cetera. And then the other thing that you're sort of bringing up here that feels really elemental in this relationship is the community that this fosters. I mean, the thing about the sort of worship of divas, of pop divas is that, and you know, this is something I think that loops back to the earlier part of our conversation where it's like the more mainstreamed gay people get, the less we're sort of like in our own world with our own sort of values and culture is I have made so many friends in my life, like via this passion, whether they be on Twitter or in my real life or whatever it is. And I do think that community, that shared language, that idea that like any date I go on, like any random hinge date I ever go on, whatever, like I know we're going to like probably talk about Beyonce and Taylor and like it's probably going to come up. You know what I mean? It's like the same as we can like share our coming out stories like with each other no matter what. It's like we can definitely like share our opinions on various pop divas. Like it's almost guaranteed. So I think that element of like searching for like-minded people this gives you a way to do that that i don't know that's like related to something that's like an interest that's like something that's easy to bring up it's like something that's easy to create community around and i think that that seems like two interesting elements of the judy garland story that feel kind of elemental here yeah oh my god yeah and i think you're right that this has always been like a key aspect of pop diva fandom for gay men in that it does like let us see our numbers in a way. Like mm-hmm. imagine yeah. you're like Like you go to like, the Charlie XCX concert and you're like, oh my God, yeah. there's so many. <laughs> yeah. It's like holy <laughs> shit. There's like more than I ever thought. Right. Yeah. And that's pretty cool, yes. right? Because I think there's like power to be felt or like we can understand individual and collective agency when we see the masses in which we are a part, mm-hmm. right? When we see the like mm-hmm. sheer size of a collective mm-hmm. and that's what these divas do. They like serve as these figures around whom we connect, right? And find each other and like build something really fucking yes. cool. Like and yes. experience these feelings. I think the most political things that popular music does is it lets us like feel our bodies in ways that maybe we can't elsewhere, right? Like I'm thinking mm. like on the dance floor, those moments mm. when fucking everything seems like possible, right? These moments mm. where we like tap into these brief, brief fleeting moments of bliss where it's like, oh shit, life can actually feel really fucking good. Like what if this is what life always felt like, right? So it, it allows us to like feel in our bodies erotic joy and potential with others. But the second thing is exactly what we're talking about right now. It lets us connect with people. It lets us feel mm-hmm. a sense of collectivity or intimacy. And when that's being done through music that we really care about, that's like a pretty profound feeling of intimacy, right? Because it's mm-hmm. so important to us. So then if we can connect with others through those cultural texts, that's like a beautiful start of some sort of connection, some sort of community or collective power. Absolutely. And it's like the way that trauma can bond. I mean, it's like, you know, it really is a fascinating product of like, how were we all in our rooms doing the I'm a slave for you? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, in yeah. private. It's such a gratifying <laughs> feeling to know that me in my bedroom in New York and you in, you know, wherever you grew up and whatever, yeah. like here we all, we share this common language. It's a powerful force and it's really validating to feel seen in that way, especially for a group of people that 
that, you know, really don't feel seen, I think, in many aspects of their lives. My next question for you is like about kind of like the ideas of camp. I mean, I feel like that's a very important element of this. Obviously, we could discuss the sort of gay man to pop diva to drag queen pipeline. So there's obviously (laughs) a lot of the divas that we are particularly into and I'll be interested because I think maybe this is changing. I don't know, but, and this could get into our like discussions of normativity too, but like historically speaking, there's a camp element to the canonical gay pop divas. Like how do you see that relationship forged? What is the kind of like campiness factor that creates a particular appeal in our community? Yeah. I think this is a huge component and it might even link back to your comments earlier about like underdogness in a way, like, Mm. you know, we were talking about Judy Garland earlier and I'm thinking about how, you know, she was being presented in the mainstream as this like vulnerable, oppressed, troubled kind of figure, which as you say, like is something that I think a lot of us as like gay men who fucking love pop music can connect with. And I wonder if there's a connection there to Mm. camp, right? If we think about camp as this like, oh, I always have so much trouble like defining camp because like what the fuck is it? But but like in the the best way possible, right? Like Mm. I don't know what it is in the best way possible, right? It's like Mm -hmm. recognition of like extravagance, artificiality, the like constructed nature of everything. It's a way of like taking serious things we shouldn't take seriously and not taking seriously the things we should take seriously. Like it's like, (laughs) it's like a resistant aesthetic way right about like Mm. taking seriously things that are supposed to be frivolous and considering frivolous the things we're supposed to take seriously and so i think this is a key component of pop music but especially like pop divas like the ones that we've been talking about so far right And so I think because pop divas might help us recognize the artificiality of fucking everything, maybe Mm -hmm. that's a reason why we feel such a close connection to them. Like as gay men, we're always told like, you know, we're not correct in all these ways, right? We're not correctly doing masculinity. We're not correctly doing normative sexuality, all these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And so when somebody is just like, you know, what's stupid, everything, you know, what's like fucking made up everything like when they point out the absurdity of all of these rules under which we live our lives i think there's like something exciting there where it's like yeah maybe we are all taking this way too seriously it's so interesting too because as you're talking i'm thinking about the ways in which pop divas and especially like the more artifice engaged or camp sort of inspired ones operate is in how they sort of make themselves or like construct themselves. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. they help us understand the ideas in which you can sort of invent yourself and be the sort of what you want to be in the world. Like, and I, you know, one thing that I was thinking about a lot, again, talking to a friend about this the other day is that like, I think a lot of straight people are never forced to like reckon with the like, who am I and what works for like in the same way or as early perhaps as like, we are like there's this experience that I think queer people have where it's like you really are forced to kind of be like who am I because you have to declare that you know there's like there's this kind of pressure that exists in a way that I think like straight people sometimes never come to or maybe come to at other junctures in their lives and then I think there's the realization that like there's elements to who you are that you can have fun with or like make up especially if you are uncomfortable with certain aspects of who you are you can sort of obscure even you can kind of like go like I'm gonna create like the most fabulous perfect version of myself and this can have obviously incredible elements to it 
but also some sort of darker things that go on, I think, amongst the queer community. But there are elements to this that are a fun part of the human experience, which is that you can sort of choose how you want to present yourself or be playful or not be attached to one sort of presentation or identity. And I think sometimes when you think about an artist like Madonna, for instance, who goes album to album cycle, completely changing how she looks and like what her music sounds like, or Gaga, obviously, being another good example of somebody that's like cycled through so many physical identities and ways of presenting her music. There's something connective there or like inspiring there where it's like people that are already kind of like how do I build an identity to function in the world or that like makes me feel safe in the world or that makes me excited to continue living (laughs) that like you can look at these people and go like oh here's a way to do that like here's an interesting way and like the most blown out maximalist way to do that and have great success in the world and like have real currency and like utilize that creativity that arises from that struggle for good or to create something fabulous or exciting to engage with and I feel like that could be another sort of piece of this puzzle here a little bit and a connection to the camp yeah I think so what you were saying just reminded me of this one Susan Sontag quote about camp so she wrote that piece like notes on camp Mm -hmm. which I should probably return to because I don't don't know air text yeah I think it's like very important but one of the lines is like camp sees everything in quotation marks Mm. or something like that. And what you were just describing makes me think about that. Like when I think about myself, I don't really know who I am. Right. So when I think about like me, I think about like me in quotation marks and it's like, oh shit, that's also what camp does. Right. It sort of like Mm. points out that everything is a performance, right. That everything is drag. If we want to take it in that route. Right. Like, that it's all just like being put on based on the expectations of others and expectations we have of ourselves. But so much of it is just an act. So much of it is in quotation marks. A hundred percent. I mean, quite a bit of it. I even guess, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Are you enjoying this episode? Because if you are, let me tell you, if you're only listening to the Pop Pantheon main feed, you're only getting half the story. Over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, we're now offering at least three. Yes, three bonus episodes of the show per month. We're talking about all your favorite new albums like Jesse Ware's That Feels Good, digging into all the big singles of the month on our new music speed rounds, and of course, deep diving on classic albums like Janet's The Velvet Rope, Ariana Grande's Positions, Lady Gaga's Chromatica, and so much more with all of your favorite Pop Pantheon guests. All of this, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and so much more. So what are you doing? Go over to patreon.com slash poppantheon or click the link in the show notes of this episode to sign up at the icon tier today. All right. So in thinking about kind of the evolution of this, so you were talking about Judy Garland, like how do you see in terms of like the modern baked in idea of this relationship? Like how does that come into being like in the periods following her, like up through the present day? Like how do you see this calcifying sort of connection occur through the divas that have come after her up to now, I guess? Yeah. So I think in the second half of the 20th century and then probably even more so in the 21st century, there's this like narrative that's being thrown out like, okay, now that there are gay male artists, this sort of like cross-gender diva fandom is no longer necessary, right? Like is no Mm -hmm. longer important. But as we were Mm -hmm. talking about earlier, like there's for sure space for both. Like I can be like blown away by Lil Nas X, but then immediately after listen to some Mariah Carey and feel like similarly powerful, right? So I think there is space for both. But the narrative that gets pushed is like, as gay men become more accepted, there's no longer this need for cross-gender identification with female artists, 
female pop stars, but like, no, it's still so important. And we can see every generation has multiple divas that they feel a closeness with, right? And I think yes, that's like right. probably an important point to emphasize. Like diva worship is specific in terms of generation, in terms of musical genre, in terms of time, in terms of specific aesthetic obsession. Like not all gay men have the same sort of like pull towards certain divas. Some gay men don't even like pop divas, but I would be suspicious <gasps> of them if I was you. Yeah, it's like, but I would not trust that type of person. Um, <laughs> no, that was just that was just a joke. Uh, but yes, there's this history. Like, I mean, we see a ton of divas in like disco and dance musics of the 60s and then moving on, right? Like Host Garage, all of these different dance musics. We see a ton of pop divas, Whitney, Madonna in the 80s. In the like late 90s, early 2000s, then we get to like girl groups, Britney, Christina, all these pop divas. Then more recently, we have Beyonce, Kylie Minogue, like all of these artists who have actually like spanned quite long periods of time and have for a long time invited devotion from gay men. Mm. For all of the reasons that we've been talking about, right? They like offer us a sense of resilience. They offer us a sense of community. They model for us powerful, feminized sexuality that mm -hmm. I think so many of us want to emulate or want to like feel yes. the power of mm -hmm. even just for a moment. There remain so many reasons to be devoted to female pop stars. There remain mm -hmm. so many reasons for diva worship. And so I hope it's something that we never really give up. Like, I hope it's always a hallmark of like, even just the weird queer part of this community, right? Even just like the faggiest little corner of the mm -hmm. LGBTQ community. Like, I hope that's something we never give up because I think this cross-gender identification can be fucking beautiful. Like, I think it can mm -hmm. just be so powerful and important and enlivening. Do you think that like the specific divas of a generation tell us something Something about the queer experience in particular of that generation. So like, if you think about Madonna Janet, does that tell us something specific about what the queer experience was like in the mid to late 80s? Or if you think about Britney Christina, does that tell us something about the late 90s and early 2000s? And same goes obviously for Gaga, Katie, or whomever you want to put out, or Charlie and Carly and all the latest kind of niche girlies. Like, is there a way in which the specific sensibilities of divas through generations like tell us something about the moment from which they're arising yeah i do so i think that's <laughs> such a brilliant question like i think you just came up with a book project that i think you should do okay. that would be amazing <laughs> but like yeah, yeah, like a history of queerness through diva worship yes, and just sort yes. of like trace this and see. Yes. Yeah. So I think to get back to your question, yes, I think there is a lot we can learn about the types of divas, the songs, the specific genres of music that were so popular with queer communities at different times. I think in that case, it would be both about the music and the artists, but more importantly, it would be about the way the music is taken up mm -hmm. in sort of like sites of collective music mm. experience, right? And so again, mm. I'm thinking about dance floors here because I've been spending a lot of time lately thinking about dance floors. No, but that's also an important thing. I think dance floors plays a big part yeah. of, because like obviously the gay club space is such a huge communal space, one of the only places in many parts of history where you could walk in and be in community here. So yeah. the ability for these divas to actually function as dance floor or dance pop artists has been fundamental. It's not universal, but it's very, very common among yeah. these particular artists. That's such a good way to like put it, right? Because everything we're talking yeah. about is like, it's not universal, but it's common and it's 
fucking important, right? It is like mm-hmm. a significant thing for a bunch of us. And so I think mm-hmm. it's worth thinking about, right? When I think about dance music cultures of the 60s, late 60s, more so the 70s, right? And the types of experiences and connections and erotic possibilities that these allowed for queer people, mm. you know, that is the foundation of gay liberation. That is the foundation mm-hmm. of like the development of gay rights, of queer lives, of queer politics, all these things. So much of that starts first on the dance floor, often under the blaring wind of these pop divas. It makes so much possible. Like for those of us who find even just like a brief moment of bliss on the dance floor, that changes everything. That doesn't just last for however long that feeling lasts, but it changes everything. It it shatters what we thought was possible for the world. I remember this other amazing quotation written by Madison Moore, who's like a DJ dance party scholar, who I don't know personally, but I really quite like his work. And he starts this article with this line, everything I learned about being queer, I learned from Tina Turner or something like that. Like, it's just like this brilliant fucking line. And so what made me think of that is, you know, yeah, I think a lot of what I understand as queer politics right now has to do with the fact that I have this like intimate relationship with these pop divas, these like close connections that I feel with these incredible female stars. And I think that Mm -hmm. does inform how I think about like queerness and my sort of dreams for the world, my way of being in the world, all of these things. So I think that, yeah, what you're asking here is so cool to think about. How do the queer politics of the moment relate to these sort of like queer experiences of musical power, musical bliss, musical agency, musical collectivity, right? I think it's so formative. And I think about also like, you know, you think about late 80s and the AIDS crisis and sort of Madonna and Janet's explorations or explicit explorations of sexual freedom, liberation, and also kind of androgynous presentation. I mean, you think about Janet in Control and Rhythm Nation moving from this sort of tomboyish presentation into the early 90s and her exploring ideas of then sort of like putting her sexuality more forward. Or again, Madonna sort of like mutating her physical being and really putting ideas of sort of sex positivity and sexual exploration forward feels like a kind of fascinating reflection of the anxieties of the AIDS crisis and of a time period where gay sexuality still felt very underground and like something Mm -hmm. that was like needing an avatar, like whose full expression needed like an avatar in that way. And then you think about like the Gaga, Katie, Kesha era and you think about like a moment where like, okay, these are all songs that are explicitly about gay people. You think about like Born This Way and Firework and We Are Who We Are and you have a generation of divas that are making music that are responsive to gay marriage becoming legal, these conversations becoming much more mainstream. can sort of see the evolution of like what the gay pop diva is and what they're sort of communicating to us mm-hmm. or for us I guess sort of yeah. like 
altered based on the circumstances of the world. Like, so then you're able to have a Gaga that's like literally forming her entire musical identity more or less around like explicitly shouting gay rights, like, you yeah. know, for, at the top of her lungs, nothing coded, not like under the table, not just like saying it in interviews or whatever, but like literally making an album called Born This Way and a song called Born This Way that's like literally yeah. like screaming gay rights, you know? So I do think that you can probably apply that idea to all the micro generations of pop divas and like what they're singing about and how they're presenting and what they're speaking to specifically in the queers that they're speaking to of their generation is like nuanced and linked to the evolution of the queer experience or something like that. Yeah. And as you say, the like specific cultural and historical moment in which those songs are taken up. I think that your reference to the eighties and like dealing with the AIDS crisis is so fucking brilliant, right? Because Mm. mid eighties, all of these spaces where gay men can come together in like bodily erotic pleasurable kind of ways are getting shut down in urban spaces right in new york like the closing of bathhouses the closing of dance clubs all of these things mm-hmm. because gay sex gay eroticism was seen as this like threat this like really dangerous thing so then as you mm-hmm. say to see music performed by pop divas that is like overtly sexual that is returning to and embracing sexuality as power like of mm-hmm. course that's going to be picked up by certain gay communities in that moment because that's precisely what they needed right like that's mm-hmm. that's like exactly the kind of resilience that ties everything we're talking about here today together right like this idea of like resilience of being like we're facing so much shit whether it's homophobia whether it's aids of course those are connected whether it's like moralistic representations of what gays should be and how assimilation should work and stuff like that but there's still this resilience that we can tap into and often that is a theme we can hear in a lot of this music one thing i was thinking about so okay so uh, this weekend i went to the eras tour and And I was thinking about Taylor in this particular context because I think you have like the canonical gay pop divas and like the gayness factor is very explicit, right? Like Cher, Madonna, Gaga. There's like a specific, we were talking about this, this kind of campiness. There's this feeling that they acknowledge and speak directly to a gay audience on various levels. They celebrate their sort of queerness in their presentation, perhaps even in what they're singing about. There's kind of this like acknowledgement. And I feel like it's those divas that kind of get held up as like the emblematic people that we're speaking about right in this space. Taylor is like interesting to me. And my question for you is like, like, so of course, obviously Taylor has like a massive gay audience, but also she's the most massive mainstream pop star in the world so like to qualify to be like one of these divas like how do we think about like do do they have to fulfill certain things is it like every big female pop star qualifies in her own way you know how do you view like the line between like who qualifies as like one of these kind of canonical gay pop divas and like are there specific ways that like certain stars fit that mold more clearly than others yeah i was just thinking about that through the lens of taylor who i think is kind of interesting in that way yeah No, I think this is so interesting. And I think we're also getting at the fact that to me, it seems it seems like harder now to identify specific pop divas that are like gay pop divas. I don't know. It seems maybe it's always easier in retrospect. So like looking back in history, it's like, oh, these are the people that the faggots were gagging for right like it's like it was more kind of clear than it is now where things i don't know it seems like all pop stars now are maybe even better at like presenting themselves in specific ways for specific niche audiences Mm. in a way Mm. but 
I think that part of diva worship is like over interpretation and like creative identification. So I think even yeah. if an artist doesn't say anything, like doesn't overtly come out to talk about like the importance of her gay fans and the gay community and right. stuff. I think we've gotten really good at like over interpreting certain aspects and ignoring other aspects. This is kind of what all music fandom is, right? Right. Like, yes. Something maybe as gay fellas, we are like really good at taking things and reading them in a slightly different way. So they apply <laughs> to us, right? Like <laughs> as like finding a way to make this work for how I understand myself. So yeah, I wonder if could there be like a kind of periodically homophobic gay pop diva right like, I mean, yeah right and maybe they're yeah, i mean donna summer, just gonna say donna as, summer. A, as an example right like there are these yeah. moments where someone says something that might call into question our adoration for them but i think yeah. we're really good at downplaying that and emphasizing aspects that verify or validate our adoration for them if that makes sense it does and I, you know one thing that i'm wondering about just even based on my question about taylor you know being kind of like the canonical mainstream pop diva of the moment like literally the only four quadrant pop star we maybe even have left i wonder if like you know we talk a lot on the show about the sort of nicheification of pop stardom as time mm. has gone on as the streaming ecosystem has taken over like you know there's it's very hard to be a jacksonian madonna-esque kind of like culture consuming pop figure anymore everything is really niche you can be a big pop star at the same time as like large segments of the population have never heard your music you know there's like yeah. a lot of nicheification that goes on here yeah. right so i wonder if that paired with kind of like the mainstreaming of queer culture has created a thing where like the canonical most important gay pop divas of the present day are these kind of like girls that don't break through to the mainstream and that we've really kind of driven down on the kind of underrated aspect of this. Like when I think about gay pop divas in the current day, it's like when I think about them in the past, I think about Madonna and Cher and like all the biggest stars. When I think about them now, of course, I think about Beyonce, etc. But I also think about largely like as i mentioned charlie xcx i was busy thinking about boys I think about like Carly Rae Jepsen, your your <laughs> countryman. I think about <laughs> Tuve Lu and Kim Petras and all of these girls that like don't chart and you go to the concert and everybody at the fucking concert is gay. And like, you just kind of like, there's this whole sort of ecosystem of pop stars that are like the providence completely of the queer community. And I wonder if like the modern gay pop diva is more that type of star than it is like the Taylor Swift or something like that. Yeah. And I think it'll depend who you're asking, right? But I love the, right. the thing that you're kind of articulating right now. Like, yeah, I think for me, like I, of course, fucking adore Beyonce and yes. would do anything she ever told me to do. Same. But I think, that, but I think like, I think you're right that maybe there's also like an underground or a less recognized element that we can embrace specifically because it has this sort of like underdog status, right? And because mm -hmm. it signals something. So the other day I was at the gym, I go to the YMCA just down the street and this guy's like AirPods disconnected from his phone. So all of a sudden, oh. Treat Me Like a Slut by Kim Petras was playing. <laughs> Oh my God. And like five of us were just like, what? It was more powerful than if he was wearing a full rainbow flag kind of yeah, jumper totally. to the gym kind of thing. And it was just this kind of beautiful and hilarious moment of connection mm -hmm. where it was just like, yeah, this music is something around which we all feel like a real closeness. And yes. I think 
in that way, it really brought me close with these dudes who I don't know. Like, I don't know their names or anything, but now right. every time I see them, we'll like give each other a little nod because we had this moment of connection through yeah. accidentally hearing Treat Me Like a Slut by Kim Petras at the YMCA. Like, it's just... <laughs> a song that no straight person has ever heard oh, in Oh my God. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like, there's no way that guy could have played it off. Like, yeah, it's just, it's just a mix. It's just on shuffle. I don't know what it is. Yeah. That it was, was like, so, that's so funny. Oh, it's yeah. Gorgeous. yeah. It, well, it's almost like, as we were talking about earlier, like as gayness and queerness has mainstreamed, it's almost like our musical tastes have nicheified or something. Like, there's, yeah. that's, I think that's an interesting almost contrast. Maybe we are finding ways to sort of like create our own communities around these underrated, quote unquote, pop divas that, like, you know, we feel that sort of like fierce protectiveness over or that sort of idea of like, were their promotional arms or, you know, yeah. whatever, yeah. all of that kind of stuff. I think that's part of it right like part of the fact that maybe some of these artists aren't as known on the mainstream is part of what attracts our fandom and our adoration because it's like it's not only just like a, oh i knew them before they were cool kind of thing but it's like listen to these people that are fucking incredible like yeah how is this not more significant to how you understand your life right like why yes. is this not like driving you in the way that it's driving me so i think there is that impulse to be like what the fuck you're missing out on this like incredible thing <laughs> like let me tell you about it yeah a hundred percent. I mean, that's definitely like a huge element of, I think, this particular generation of niche pop gay icons is like they are underrated and straight people don't get it. And that's like in particular, it's like straight people in particular don't get it. And that's so sad. That's so sad, right? It is like, sad. Oh my God. Are you kidding? Uh, Tragic for them. But also when they try to cross over, it can be sad too. Like, I mean, yeah. this is a whole topic for another day, but like watching Kim Petras like attempt to like break out of the gay niche, like has created like yeah. music that's like less, you know, it's like, there's like things you have, there's concessions you have to make. So it's, it's complex, yeah. I think in that particular way. It makes me think like, just as a quick, like reframe, you know, the yeah. best thing to ever happen to me is like being gay, right? Like yeah. what a lucky, what a <laughs> A lucky fucking thing to get to experience these sorts yes. of like that definitely would not make the same amount of sense to me if I was not living the life for like coming upon the histories like after which I come like what a great what a great fucking thing I, comp I could not agree more it's like literally wouldn't trade it for anything yeah. yeah i want to touch down briefly before we get out of here in the lesbian sort of world of this stuff because there are queer women that have a specific other group of pop stars or adjacent world of pop stars i'm thinking about like melissa etheridge tegan and sarah janelle monet maybe like Haley kiyoko is there elements of this that we can sort of like say are singular to that particular relationship or adjacent about that relationship like have you ever thought about that as like an adjacent but connected world yeah. Yeah, I've thought about it a lot because other than like dance pop music, my favorite type yeah. of music is like sure. sad lesbian singer songwriter. <laughs> like those are my two kind of extremes. <laughs> and like friends can tell what I'm listening to based on my texts and my outlook on the world, right? Because it's such yeah. like extreme differences of musical logics where I'm just like yes. listening to sad lesbians from the 1980s. <laughs> that's like affecting how I'm living my life. But, but I'm just bringing this up to say like, yeah, I think there is space for both and more and all these things right and i think there is space for like lesbian fans of pop divas of course there are many lesbian fans of, of course, pop divas. Of, like, course I think of course of I, course of course the, the other day my partner adam went to a janet jackson show here in toronto yes. and he went with a bunch of yes. friends mostly yes. lesbians and a couple straight women and like mm -hmm. they were all like in it 
right? Like they showed yes. me videos afterwards. They were all like in it. And so yes. it didn't really matter the sort of like different sexual and gender identities or whatever. They were all brought together by this artist and their love for her. And yeah. so I was thinking about that kind of like what that means, because I think if other people saw them at the concert, maybe the women's sort of experience of fandom would be different than my partner Adam's because he's like not supposed to identify so aggressively and overwhelmingly with this female artist. Like there is this sort of thing that is improper about it because mm. of this cross-gender sort of thing. But I think there's space for all of this and more. Mm -hmm. Like I love listening to like disco tits and then listening to, I don't know, something by like... <laughs> Frank, like P-H-R-A-N-C, that like classic sure. <laughs> lesbian singer-songwriter, right? Like there's, I don't know, there's something about all of this that just strikes me as what I need for my queerness. You know who strikes me as the middle zone of the current moment between these two orbiting worlds and like- Don't, but I'm so excited to hear. Whenever I'm speaking to a 25-year-old gay person or something, like this diva comes up as like definitely like one of the main ones for that generation. And she like does not- not fit the dance pop mold at all and reflects maybe like the sort of diversifying of what a gay male pop diva can be in the modern ecosystem is Lana Del Rey. Like somebody yeah. that definitely feels like a huge queer icon, but like does not operate in like the traditional dance pop mode and like is more of like the confessional singer songwriter that fits more squarely into some of these more like canonically lesbian artists that we're talking about today, yeah. but like definitely feels like very important to this generation generation of gay men. And she's very camp, very camp as well. Let, let's break these distinctions of genre, of gender, of all these things yeah. and see what's possible. Right? Like, yeah. Yeah. All right. So this was such a fun conversation. My last question that I want to ask you is, is there like a specific song or whatever that you just feel like for you personally, like sort of speaks to this for you and your experience? Like, is there a song that like, I don't know, maybe you loved when you were a kid or something that just like really sort of represents this relationship to you on a personal level that we could send the show out on? You know, when I go with like a click that might be a fringe for some people but i think for me these i want to dance with somebody is like the song yeah you kind of can't go wrong with that yeah just like me little gay boy rural nova scotia canada in the bathroom secretly dancing to whitney houston's dance with somebody mm. that that's all you need to know about me tells you everything oh i love that i mean what a perfect song all right so <laughs> let's go out on the incredible whitney houston's i want to dance with somebody who loves me dr craig genix thank you so so much for such a wonderful conversation mm -hmm. 